It's rather, <clears throat> rather lovely to be, have the opportunity to come and sit in this space with you. Rather different than on a group retreat where one sort of spends a lot of time in the same space with the retreatants, practitioners. On this retreat we kind of, uh, as you're quite aware, disappear and occasionally uh, emerge from wherever it was we went to and uh, turn up either in the library or the teacher wing or occasionally here. And uh, since for me of just being in contact with and rather sweetly nourished by the quality of attentiveness and stillness and interest and presence that's beginning to deepen here. And I'd like this morning to speak and reflect some on the the breadth of inclusivity of, of the Dharma practice and particularly the practice of mindful attention, the way in which we begin in our practice often has some degree of focus or specificity whereby we attend to particular objects or experiences as a way of establishing a certain steadiness, calmness, clarity of mind. And of course we can choose in an ongoing way to to develop that capacity um, in the form of samatha or through the development of brahma-viharas, of loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, involving focusing on a very particular line of development. And yet in the in the teaching of the Buddha, as well as that possibility, and perhaps more as the, the broader possibility, we have the invitation to include all things in the meditation. And so far as we're involved in the development of, of insight, of wisdom, that liberating potentiality of of understanding the nature of things, how things are. In this in this practice and teaching of Buddha Dharma, the transformative potency is very much rooted in the fact that we leave nothing out. Anything that we don't fully include in our meditative practice and in our interest and willingness to understand and to learn will have the effect of being a limit upon what is possible in terms of wisdom, in terms of liberation. So in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on the foundations of mindfulness or the uh, frames of reference for the directing of attentiveness and awareness, there are four foundations that are spoken of and we've reflected on them over these last several mornings. I don't know if any of the other teachers have actually described as such that that's what we were doing, but in terms of starting initially more with a breath and body, this is in the realm of the, the first foundation, looking at the, the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, second foundation of mindfulness, the, that feeling tone. The states of mind, the quality of consciousness, the very texture of that knowing faculty, is the third foundation of mindfulness. And the fourth is uh, dharmas, we could say. 
knowing what it is that goes on within that knowing capacity, what it is that goes on within this which we call our mind or which we refer to as mind. What we encounter within this experience of being conscious. In some ways all of that falls within the fourth foundation. So anything that wasn't clearly pointed to beforehand is pretty much here within the the realm of what we are invited to attend to. And the way in which from a point of view of the uh, the meditative practice, we initially engage with this territory is in the realm of thought and our encounter with and our exploration of what it means to to meet the experience or the process of thinking skillfully, usefully, in a way that is both illuminating and liberating for us. So learning to work with the thinking mind so important in practice, so crucial if we wish to be free in the midst of our lives. Although the mind quietens down in the context of meditative practice and we can develop certain trajectories or areas of uh, possibility for our mind in which thinking in fact drops away and quite useful and some rather lovely as well. Those developments very beneficial. And yet ultimately we do have to meet our mind and its thinking capacity, which has the remarkable ability, it seems, and I'm sure this is not news to any of you, but the remarkable ability to somehow entrance, entangle or bind us through its activity, it seems. And there's the rather well-known and often used quote from Buddhadasa, which I'd like to in this situation, share again. He he was once asked, Ajahn Buddhadasa was a, a great uh, teacher and innovator in Dharma practice in Thailand in the 20th century. And he was once asked, how would you describe the world? He replied in three words. He said, lost in thought. And I think we probably, most of us, recognize the, the truth and the encompassing nature of that simple statement. Lost in thought. And so there's this experience that we encounter that none of us are unfamiliar with. We are this flow, this stream, this current, it seems, of images and concepts, of ideas, constructions, associations that appear, for some of us, primarily in the sense of language, as in um, words. For others of us, it can be more noticeable in the form of images. That They both, in fact, are forms of thinking, whether concepts or images. Basically, they're creating a sense of a certain reality or a certain perception or a certain perspective that we find ourselves held within, at least until we come to understand the nature of that process. With those thoughts and images, they, they tend to easily be for us rather sticky. We get lost in them. We get drawn or pulled into the attraction, the allure that they seem to offer. Or we find ourselves struggling with, battling against the fact of their being there at all. We tend to very easily go in one way or the other. In that sense of getting lost in them, we either get lost in them with some sense of happy abandonment of, yes, 
This is where I should be. At some level, we believe that when we follow them. We do. It's like we're standing at a station. We're just here. We're just present. And a train comes past. And it, you know, it's coming into the station. It looks like a good one. I think I'll get on this. It's, it's going to be a great ride. Look where it's going. I want to go there. And we get on the train and off it goes. And uh, maybe at some point down the line, we realize that it's you know, heading towards some chasm or train wreck or something that actually isn't what we thought was going to happen when we first got on it. But somehow we do it again and again. And that sense of what happens to us when we, when we follow, when we, when we identify with, with a sense of, yes, I should follow the thought. I should just believe what my mind generates and enact it. This is something that you know, we see played out in the world again and again. And there's a, a rather remarkable and, I think, uh, lovely story. Well, maybe lovely is not quite the word. You can judge for yourself. Um, certainly amusing story of a man who had a thought. And it's not remarkable. Um, most men and women equally have had plenty of thoughts. But on this occasion, it was a thought that for this, uh, this man from America, Larry, he had regularly since he was quite young he said I want to fly this is the thought that came into his mind I, I want to fly I want to be able to fly and so through school he uh, set his sights on getting the sort of attaining the educational level that would enable him to get into the air force but um, when he um, came through school and started to uh, pursue that course he found that he didn't have the physical level of um, I think maybe his eyes weren't, weren't quite good enough to to go in that direction so he wasn't able to and he uh, but he had to you know, find some other form of work. Um, but all this time, there's a sense of, I want to fly, I want to fly, I want to be able to fly. And then at some time, um, probably I think in his early 20s, he had the idea, I know how I can do this. This thought had been with him for a long time, and he'd really been feeling its pull. And he said, I know. And so what he did is he went down to a local hardware store, and I don't know if local hardware stores here have these sort of things, but apparently this is a true story. Um, and he bought some helium weather balloons there. So it was probably a, quite a large hardware store, not your average B&Q. Um, <clears throat> he bought some large helium balloons there and some cylinders for filling them with helium. <clears throat> and they, and uh, I think they're, they're used for sort of weather, sort of something to do with weather purpose. Anyway, I don't really know the background of all that. But anyway, he took these home he tied a lounge, a sort of a lounge chair from the lawn to the ground, first of all, with a couple of stakes, and then he tied the balloons to the lounge chair, and then he got himself a small um, plastic box with some sandwiches and a drink, and an air rifle, which I'll explain in a moment, and then he strapped himself into the chair with his lunch and his air rifle, and he connected up the balloons to the helium cylinders and started to fill them one at a time until they were tugging at the chair, but the chair was attached to the ground, to the stakes. And then he disconnected the cylinders, he untied the rope attaching the chair to the ground. And had this very, the sense of all this time, I'm going to do it, finally, I'm going to fly. I've wanted to fly for so long. And he had the sense, I just to float, you know, 30, 40 feet up in the air, enjoy the view, have some lunch, drink from his thermos. And then when he was tired, he thought, you know, I'll just shoot the balloons one at a time and I'll come down quite gently. And so he cut the, he cut the rope or untied it and started to rise up actually quite quickly. In fact, he 
rose up and he didn't stop at 20 or 50 feet above his garden. He kept going, 100 yards, 2, 5, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. They think he got up to about four or 5,000 yards or metres above the ground. It was a little bit shocking for him. It was also rather scary. He realised it was a long way down. And he didn't really want to try shooting any of the balloons because he didn't know how quickly he would fall from that height if he did so. And so he was kind of stuck up there. It was also rather cold. And at this point, the thought, I'm going to fly, was possibly not what was in his mind, although that's certainly what got him there. The story records that he started to drift and eventually he floated into the airspace of a US Air Force base. And they... uh, picked him up on their radar and sent a jet up to investigate what this was. Um, I don't remember the detail of how he got down. I think eventually the helium leaked out of the balloon slowly and he came down. He was arrested for violating federal airspace. Have you ever had a journey like that? where we took a thought that seemed quite innocent, possibly quite enjoyable to follow, did what it suggested we needed to do, and then we see this way in which somehow we are carried away. He was fortunate. If he'd had a few more helium balloons, he'd have gone up high enough where there maybe wasn't enough oxygen or it was so cold he would have frozen. He was lucky, actually. Mostly, we've been lucky too, otherwise we wouldn't still be here with regard to that. I think when we come into meditation, and certainly once we've been practicing for a time, we we have some degree of healthy scepticism with regard to thought. We start to see how they come and go. We start to recognize that some of them are profoundly unreliable, if not, in fact, extremely dangerous for us to uh, contemplate giving authority to. And yet, it seems we do it unconsciously a lot of the time. We notice how much time we spend still getting lost and caught and drawn into and pursuing and following trains of thought. And what then easily can happen is, of course, the reverse position that we seem to be left with only these two, or habitually we take one of two positions, which is either I have to believe and follow the thought or somehow I have to stop it happening. And that's the only way I can avoid it. Like if that thought would stop happening, then I wouldn't have to do what it's suggesting then I wouldn't have to follow, then I wouldn't have to try and get myself up into sort of the, uh, the atmosphere, so to speak, following Larry's example. I wouldn't have to do that. And yet what happens when we approach thinking like this? When we approach the thinking mind to somehow, rather than being the solution to our problem, which is kind of how it begins, we think, wow, look, this, this is going to give me the answers. After a while... And certainly for meditators, very common. It's like, this is not the solution. This is the problem. This thing has got to stop. You know? And an immense amount of effort and energy can go into trying to somehow stop the thinking process, to prevent thoughts. And the degree of focus and effort and the kind of the gritting of teeth and sweating that's sometimes involved in just trying to keep the mind from having a thought. Born of a fear that if it has one, I'm going to follow it and then I'm going to get lost and then my meditation, my day, my whole retreat, possibly my life will be wasted, lost in thought. Now there's a risk that that might happen. But in fact when we relate to thought in that way it just becomes a battle, it becomes a struggle. 
it's not really that useful, is it? And again, this isn't news to you, but in terms of in the context of looking at our relationship to that field of experience, this is what we need to reflect on: the tendency to identify with thought positively, whereby we believe that what it says is true and definitive and somehow representative of me or what I want or need or should be acting on. Or where we say, no, it's wrong, it's bad, it's got to stop, I don't like it, get rid of it. Those two polarities are both forms of becoming entangled with the thinking mind. One in a positive identification, grasping onto it. One in a negative identification, rejecting, resisting, condemning it. There's a a very lovely story from the uh, tradition of the Desert Fathers recounted by Thomas Merton, and these were sort of, uh, I guess, Christian-based practitioners living, I think they were Christian, was that? Yeah, I think so, um, living in the, in the deserts in the, in, the, in the Middle East and practicing there. And there's a story of a, a young brother who comes to, the, to, the, to the, one of the, 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 the elders and says, uh, you know, Abba, Abba, which is like father, father, I'm trying to stop my mind from thinking and I cannot. It's such a struggle. It's so difficult. Can you help me? And the father says to him, "Ah, you must go out into the desert with your, with your, with your cape. And see if you can catch the wind. How can I catch the wind? It's not possible." So too, the father said. So too, you cannot stop your thinking, but you can learn to say no to it. And this really represents the shift, doesn't it? Learning to say no. Not to the fact of the thought, but to the urge or impulse that comes with thinking that suggests either I must act on it or I must suppress it. That I must somehow believe it or remove it. We have another option here. And this is really a key part of the skill we develop in meditation. That ability to recognize thought as a thought. To see that sometimes they have value or use or um, serve us. And sometimes they really have little value or use. And sometimes they're clearly and potentially harmful if we are to act upon them. Being able to see that thought in and of itself is not an obstacle. It's so easy for it to become like you know the bad guy in meditation practice. If we don't include thinking, we will not really be able to free the mind because the mind is subject to that process, to those phenomena that we call thought. So we observe thought. We include it in the meditative practice. Now, generally not so useful to try and do that when we're just settling in, becoming established, because we just get lost in them or react to them very quickly. But as you find yourself more steady, more settled, as there's a, a qualitative shift that begins to happen, begins to deepen in the capacity to just see what's going on, to be clear, to recognize with some degree of precision and some degree of space, oh, this is what's happening. As we develop as that capacity, as that increases, then we more and more are in fact empowered and able to simply see the thought process, to begin to explore and observe it, to see and to understand what's going on in all of that. 
And so the invitation, the encouragement is to be able to name it for what it is, to see its thinking, to be specific in particular with the kinds of thoughts we might encounter. Maybe judgment, maybe planning, maybe anxiety or fantasy, maybe stories about how great I am, or how absolutely rubbish I am, or whatever the kind of stories or patterns of thoughts we see, we start to name them, we start to recognize them. Not at all unusual at some point, it's often sooner rather than later, to start to see that there's not that many original thoughts in the thinking process. Um, you know, most of the thoughts that go through our minds have been through our minds before. And most of them have been through our minds many, many, many times before. It's a very, very tiny proportion of thoughts that have anything new to say. And yet look how much airtime they get. How much background agitation they generate for us. Seeing how they tend to construct for us the sense of past and future. These things don't exist without thought. And yet the whole sense of substantiality, solidity of the world of past, of future, and equally of the sense of present as if it's somehow different or apart from past and future. All of this is constructed by thought. And so if we can see the thought, if we can name it, it can be so helpful sometimes just to say, ah, judging. Ah, fantasy. Ah, stories from the past. Get to know your own top ten. You know, the hits, the ones that come by regularly. As one meditator reported excitedly on their first retreat, I've had an insight, you know, my mind is a jukebox. And you see, you know, we're not pushing the buttons, we're not putting the money in the slots. It just seems to play all this stuff. Some of the songs we love, some of them we hate. Others of which, well, doesn't really matter either way, it seems. And yet, through the whole process of it, often in it and unquestioned is a sense of me, of my, of I, that there's a relationship of ownership, of possession or of self-definition between those thoughts and what we or I take myself to be. That sense of it's my thought or I am thinking. If you were thinking a thought, you'd be able to stop any time you wanted. Try it and see. If it was something you were doing, it's something you could not do. That's not what most of us experience. Of course, we can cultivate qualities and capacities that allow it to come to a halt. But that's very different. That's not something we do. That's the result of something else that we've developed. And of course, you know, that's not necessarily what happens. It may not be it ever comes to that quietness for us. It may just become much more subtle, more gentle, more soft and transparent. And yet, in all of that, if we start to look at the sense of thinking from this point of view, of what's the nature of this? We're asked to contemplate thought. To start to bring a reflective, curious, interested contemplation into practice. Not thinking about thought, but just seeing it with that interest and openness to understand what's going on here. What's happening in this process? How does this come to have the impact that it does? Or, if it's not having any impact, how does that come to be so? 
Seeing thoughts arising and passing, coming and going like all experience. Pleasant ones, unpleasant ones, neutral ones. Thought is the same as any other experience. Except in insofar as that sense of somehow it seems much more core to defining who we are. It tells us our story. If our emotional life or state of mind gives us a sense of a, a more a, at a heart level how we experience or what we experience ourselves to be, from the point of view of our, our mind, it's the content of thought. From the point of view of our identity, it's the content of the thought that seems to, seems to capture that or represent that, the thoughts we have. And yet all of that arises out of the sense of I am thinking or it's my thought. And those are simply thoughts. The thought, I am thinking, is just a thought. Why do we give it more weight than the thought that might say, the moon is made of green cheese? That's also a thought. We don't immediately find ourselves compelled to believe it's true. Try it. The moon is made of green cheese. I've been using that thought for years and it hasn't changed. It turns up, it sounds interesting, it doesn't grab me. And yet what's so different about the thought that says, I'm thinking? That can grab me. Or it's my thought. What is that being grabbed? What goes on in that? When we learn to observe the thinking process, to see it for what it is, without identifying with the content, without having to say, yeah, this is true, or this is all true, this is all important, because some thoughts, in fact, are true, some thoughts are useful, but not assuming that to be the case. Well, we don't give it that authority, but nor do we say, Somehow it's got to stop, or only good ones are allowed here. Only noble, enlightened, wise, compassionate, articulate, and uh, appropriate thoughts are allowed. Well, we don't take that view of it. We just say, oh, thinking happens. Because it does. Thinking happens. When we can see it in that way, then thought has in and of itself no power. No ability to bind us, to deceive us, to confuse us, or to cause suffering for ourselves or others. It has no power in and of itself. The power it appears to have is derived from the way we take hold of it, with either the grasping of identifying with, or the grasping of rejecting, and seeking to negate, or get rid of. The power that thought has is something we give it, but which we are not obliged to give it. And in Dharma practice, we learn to see that we have that choice and to be able to exercise that choice from a place of clarity, from understanding, from wisdom and compassion. To see thoughts come into the mind. They come into the mind and they at some point depart from it. Before your mind is having a thought, it's not there. Have you ever contemplated that? Before your mind is having a thought, that thought is not there. It's not sitting there somewhere waiting to come in, in a cupboard, 
marked, you know, thoughts to be had tomorrow. It's just not there. After it goes out of your mind, it's also not there. It's not in a cupboard that says thoughts I had yesterday or earlier this morning. It's not there. Thoughts come in according to conditions. Thoughts go out. When the conditions are familiar or repetitive, similar thoughts come in and go out. Just like clouds that move through the sky. Clouds come in. Maybe it rains for a while. Maybe it's stormy. And at some point, they clear. What would it be to see the thinking process in this way? To contemplate it, to reflect upon it. Not intellectually, not trying to figure it out, but just from the centre, ah, look, this is what happens. Thought comes, thought goes. When we start to see thought in this way, neither as the solution nor the problem to life or of life, we also start to notice the space in, around and through every thought. That the very thoughts are punctuated by spaces. From one thought to the next, there is a gap. Sometimes thought slows down and the gap becomes larger. Or sometimes the very thinking becomes more quiet. And we can sense the very space within the thought. It's like we start to see that that's a quality of it. Just as we might sense that clouds are full of space. They look quite solid. They can appear to obscure our view. But if you actually try and get a hold of a piece of it, it just would slip through your fingers. It's an appearance. And, you know, when it's clouds, it has some significance. It's not without its significance. But the appearance is not the same, necessarily, as what its significance is. And so to see that, to see a thought is just a thought, arising out of conditions, from emptiness, we can say, dissolving back into conditions, returning to emptiness, we can say, emptiness being that seeing and understanding of the conditionality of things. (coughs) Thoughts come and go, arise and pass. And when we notice the space around them, the spaces in between them, the very spaciousness of their nature, the very quality and texture of them, free from grasping and aversion, in and of themselves, starting to sense the directly experienceable insubstantiality of them when we don't give them that substantiality. We start to sense that there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an opening, there's a freeing of heart and mind that naturally begins to happen. There's a quite a sense of relief and release that just ah because we start to understand something really important. Thoughts in and of themselves are expressing something. Sometimes wisdom, sometimes delusion, sometimes wholesome qualities and heart and mind coming through in the form of thoughts that express May you be happy, or may I be happy. There's a beautiful quality coming through there of kindness. Or maybe it's a quality of hatred. I'm going to kill that 
for what they did. And we say, oh, okay, that's, that's that. We start to recognise what's underlying. And likewise too, when understanding comes, sometimes it comes in a form that's wordless. Just a knowing that we feel something open or shift and language isn't required. And other times it comes with a clear reflection in language and consciousness that says, oh, it's like this. Well, yeah, I see now. One Tibetan teacher once said, wisdom is just a wandering thought. Sometimes it wanders in. Sometimes, of course, they seem to wander off, despite the fact that we had it and thought it was mine. And I thought I knew that. And yet here am I doing the same old thing again. Wisdom wanders in, and sometimes it seems to wander off. Though, With practice, perhaps it doesn't go quite as far before it comes back. Seeing and relating to the thought process like this, it can be a very useful ally for us. We can start to use it because what thinking offers us is the ability to be precise and specific and particular in understanding what's actually going on. So actually we need it in terms of the development of, of Dharma practice to really understand what's going on. The Buddha would not have filled umpteen volumes of uh, teachings with his discourses um, without a very acutely developed and refined and powerful thinking capacity and yet we need to liberate the thought capacity from our reactivity and that's really the key isn't it the reactivity of I want I must have or I do not want and I cannot tolerate when that gets hooked onto the thought process or the content of the thought process what we're thinking about then it becomes a struggle But when we disengage, when we learn to relinquish or release that urge to not locate it or to not not consent to it being enacted through the thought processes, so far as we're able, so far as we're present and mindful and have the choice about that, of course, when we're unconscious, that's just what happens. But we see we're not obliged to be unconscious we don't have to consent to that unconsciousness either ultimately then we can contemplate we can use this faculty that's slightly different to the mindfulness factor which is simply the knowing the bare seeing the recognizing sati understanding but sati always comes together with sampajanya clear comprehension understanding sati sampajanya so there's a lot of talk about sati, mindfulness these days, but liberation comes through sampajanya, through clear comprehension, through understanding. And that is a slightly difficult, uh, sorry, difficult, slightly different, though very closely linked and associated factor and faculty that we cultivate in practice. And in the, in the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, which I referred to, the Buddha speaks about bringing that faculty to the range of inner experience that we might call the the features or the terrain of the mind. And there's various 
areas of interest or topics of interest that he pointed out and suggested would be useful, would be important, perhaps would be crucial for us to in this way recognize and contemplate. And I'm just going to review them in brief rather than in detail because, in fact, to go through it all in detail would involve pretty much trying to encompass the whole teaching, which does run to quite a few volumes, as I said, and uh, beyond the scope of the next uh, five or ten minutes. But in this, the, the Buddha invited us to be aware of the hindrances or the challenges to meditation. And I think Christina was speaking about these a few days ago. Sense, desire, aversion, agitation and restlessness or dullness and sloth and sceptical undermining doubt. The way these are described in the sutta is to know when they're present and to know when they're absent. The key thing with working with the mind is the practice of knowing what's present and what's absent. So when we work with thought, to begin with it seems like thought is a solid field and there's you know, no space in it. As we start to understand it, we say, oh, it's, it's shot through with holes, in fact. It's shot through with holes. It's full of spaces. And that's actually what gives us the room to work with it, to manoeuvre, to understand it. And so likewise, noticing, and if there's a particularly difficult one for you, sure, notice it, pay attention to it when it's there. That's often what we think of as the practice, working with the difficult patterns and reactivities, like, you know, see my tendency to aversion, I've got to pay attention to it, I've got to work with it. Yeah, sure, we do. But notice the moments, and there will be moments, and many of them, when it is not there. Because there is nothing that's always there. If there was something that was always there, it would be the only thing that ever happened. And in the realm of phenomena, there is no such thing. <coughs> so by the fact that it's not always there, there's clearly got to be times when it's absent. It's really useful to notice absence. The wisdom of absence is profoundly liberating for us because it punctures and cuts through the sense of solidity and permanence that we can ascribe to those things we struggle with. Both in the moment of the noticing its absence, we can see, ah, yeah, so sometimes this is what occurs. Sometimes reactivity, agitation, drowsiness, doubt, craving arises, yes. And sometimes it doesn't, it's not, it's just not here. So there's a sense of seeing the truth of that, but also that's so helpful to remember when we're in the midst of something difficult that okay, I'm in the midst of it, or I appear to be. This experience seems to be happening. But it's not solid, it's not permanent, it's not substantial in the way that I will always be here. Because often that's part of our identification with it. But we start to notice then the conditions that support that experience and the conditions that support the dropping away of that experience. And this again, what the Buddha suggests, contemplating the factors, the arising factors, those things that give rise and contemplating the cessation factors or abandoning factors, those things that allow something to end or allow us to relinquish, let it go. And so we come to notice when these are present or absent in the mind. The Buddha spoke also of noticing the, the five aggregates of form, the bodily experience, feeling the, uh, the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, Perceptions, the way in which we 
have a recognizing faculty that sort of imprints onto our sense experience that's what it is. It's this. And then formations, which is the whole stream of reactions to that, that, that are kind of like coming out of our, 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 our karmic bank, you could say, that just do something with it that may be wholesome or unwholesome according to what's been supported and cultivated in relationship to that. And then consciousness, the, the knowing faculty itself, the just ah, the capacity that can recognize and see. And with, with, with this, the Buddha, again, says to know, oh, this is form. So when we feel a dense feeling, it's like, oh, that's, that's form. That's the aggregate of form. We just know that's what it is. And if it's pleasant, we know, oh, that's the aggregate of feeling tone, Vedana. Form is rupa. I don't know if we've, others have been using the words in the Pali, but rupa is form. Vedana is feeling tone. And then we have the, uh, the, the perception that might come around it like it's bad, it shouldn't be happening, maybe something's wrong. Well, that's probably more than perception, isn't it? Perception is this is pain. Formation is, oh, I don't like it, get rid of it, go away. And then the knowing of all that is, is consciousness. And we just say, oh, this is what's here. Noticing how those experiences too arise and pass. Sense of the aggregate. Sometimes we're in contact with it, sometimes not. But seeing when we're aware of it, that's so. Knowing also the bases. And again, I'm just briefly skimming, which is to do with the, the sense bases, eye and forms. Noticing seeing is happening, and how that happens is because of the coming together of there's a something to be seen and an eye that can see. It happens, boom. Likewise with sound and ears and taste and tongue and consciousness and thoughts, in fact. Just noticing those and the fetter that arises dependent upon it the tendency to grasp or reject in relationship to the experience that's arisen. Noticing how it comes into being and how it falls away. So it's a lot of noticing in this, in this area of contemplation that which supports something coming into being or sustaining and that which supports something dropping away, falling away, ending or not coming into being. And likewise, the Buddha then reflects on the enlightenment factors to be aware of mindfulness when it's present. To know, oh, mindfulness is present. Huh. Oh, equally to notice, oh, mindfulness isn't present. Now, that's a little bit of a tricky one because to notice that, of course, one has to be mindful. So it's going to be slightly, mindfulness isn't as strong. I've been spaced out quite a lot in the last half an hour. Or mindfulness was totally absent since yesterday at lunchtime, but it's back now. But it's still noticing that. And then, of course, the other factors, noticing that quality of investigation, of curiosity, when it's there. Oh, wow. Yeah, the breath, it's like, wow, amazing. Look at that ripple and trickle and switch and open and stop. Or whatever. And then other times it's not there and it's like, huh, the breath. Mm, mm, mm. You know, and it's like, I'm really just not interested in this thing. It's like, oh, that fact is not present right now. So then, just by noticing that, actually, interestingly, it brings some interest in. It's like that, that, cura- that willingness or that interest to just sense what's going on here. Energy. It's the third factor of awakening. <coughs> Joy or rapture. That one we usually notice pretty quickly. 
We've got to notice then whether there's any grasping towards it, which comes from one of the other lists. But noticing this present. Or sometimes we notice it's not there. Where's the rapture gone? Where's the joy gone? I wanted to be having some delightful expanded feeling, and I'm supposed to be because it's one of the enlightenment factors, so I need to be getting that, don't I? I see, oh, actually sometimes it's just not there. It doesn't usually happen when we're tired, at least not for me. When heaviness or tiredness is there, it don't often get a lot of joy and rapture. It seems to come with energy. And that's actually kind of recognised in the way they support each other. Tranquility. Concentration. Equanimity. The stabilising and calming factors of the awakening, factors of enlightenment and awakening. Noticing when they're there. Huh, it's there. Oh, huh, it's not there. That sense of being able to see what's there and what supports them. Or to see what supports them not being there. Again, all of that is within the realm of contemplating dhammas. Knowing what's actually going on. What's actually happening. And finally with this, the the knowing of the Four Noble Truths within our actual experience is within the fourth foundation. It's part of what we need to encompass. Of course, we're not going to be doing all of this at once. And if we find ourselves thinking a lot about whether we should be doing it or how we should be doing it, then actually it might be more useful in that moment just to drop it all and go back to the breath or back to the body or back to a phrase of loving kindness. But the Four Noble Truths equally. To know when suffering is arising, ah, this is suffering. Just to know it as that. This is suffering. Or to know when suffering drops away. Ah. Or a particular suffering born of a particular grasping. As we relinquish the grasping, it drops away. And then we see the suffering. There's its origin. It was that, I must have it this way. I, I want. Or I don't want. They've put celery in the dinner again. I hate it. Ah. I don't like celery. It's just how it is. And like, okay, but that's dinner. It's either celery or nothing. And uh, in a small way, we can see the suffering just dissolve. Whereas, ah, this is the path. This is the path to the end of suffering. Noticing that, ah, it's the relinquishment of the grasping and the position and the sense of I that holds on to my preference of what I want that would be pleasant or not. And that's the path. And it's all in there and it's happened. It's like, ah, there was suffering. It was caused by this. It dissolved. And that was the path of its dissolution. And seeing how that happens in moments or places in our prayers, an immense sense of uh, uplift and confidence comes. Something really beautiful, powerful in this to see. That while none of this is ultimately what we are, or something we can control in any definitive, absolute way, nonetheless, we can cultivate, develop, and find skill and facility with all of this territory so that we become more agile, more fluid, more free, ultimately, in the midst of it and in our life. And so, I invite and encourage you to continue to practice (coughs) sensing when it's appropriate for you to keep it quite simple, straightforward, perhaps more focused and oriented towards just settling, calming, allowing heart and mind to 
find the stillness and equilibrium. And other times when there's more of the need and the value of an exploratory, investigative sense of just really seeing and contemplating in this way what is and what isn't. With the direct knowing, the direct seeing of, of mindfulness together with clarity. Sati Sampajanya. Comprehension born of a fullness and a wholeheartedness of being present and awake and open. So let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.